Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Morconan. I'm Michael Kipp. And today we're discussing the future of knowledge. That means we'll get into how scientific knowledge is discovered, how it's disseminated, and how it's absorbed or not absorbed by the public. We'll also discuss misinformation, conspiracy theories, and the role that science currently plays, as well as the role that it should play within the competitive attention economy. And for those of you who don't know, Michael Kipp is a postdoctoral scholar of geochemistry at the California Institute of Technology, and he also heads up our research team at Hence the Future. Uh, today, he will be giving his personal thoughts on knowledge, so not along the lines of any organizations he's associated with. And to start, Kip, perhaps you can tell our listeners about your recent trip to India and the need for reliable, up-to-date information about travel and risks amidst the coronavirus and maybe how that ties into knowledge. So I'm sitting here talking to you from Los Angeles on March 8th. Um, but if you'd asked me months ago what I'd be doing right now, I would have told you I'd be in the field in India. Um, and obviously I'm not, and this is related to this coronavirus outbreak. Um, so I was recently just in the midst of, um, you know, making these plans to go on this field trip. It's been over a year at this point that this has been in the works. There was a conference that I was going to be attending as well. And as this, uh, epidemic and I guess coronavirus outbreak has uh, spread, I found myself in critical need of accurate information on a day-to-day -day basis of what is going to happen uh, to travelers. Are you going to get quarantined? Are you going to get detained and tested and all of these things? Uh, are you going to get held up in some random airport for 14 days or 28 days or something? Um, and yeah, this was... And you had a wedding to get back to, to so it's not like you could just <laughs> delay your trip by two weeks or three weeks. Yes, which is another particularly interesting uh, thing of the timing of all of this. I didn't have any time to spare here. Um, and what it really, you know, the thought that crystallized in my mind then is that what I'm relying on or in search of here is quality information, uh, scientific information in many cases. So what is the latest data we're getting from this outbreak? What are the number of cases? How severe is the illness or even more on the social science side, uh, what are the different countries doing to combat mm -hmm. this and what are their policies for international travelers? Um, and it really shocked me when I was on the hunt for this information, how much noise there is out there, how much you, know, you have to sift through basically to get the quality information or just the answers to your questions. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, yeah, that's really primed me a bit for thinking about all these topics. Yeah, it's interesting because when people talk about the attention economy, it really does operate in a similar way to the normal economy in the sense that there's supply and demand. And when something like a global pandemic occurs, the demand for information about the pandemic skyrockets. And then as a result, the supply of information will also skyrocket. But oftentimes, especially in a case where it's a new virus, there's so much we don't know the information quality ends up being fairly low because people are just giving their gut reaction to what they think is causing the virus, what they think are going to be the repercussions of the virus. And so you end up having to sift through so much uh, unqualified information to find actual quality sources from people like uh, Trevor Bedford, who, you know, maybe you can say a bit more about 
how you discovered him because you were the one who actually told me about his work and he's one of the few reliable sources on this because he's been studying coronaviruses for the bulk of his career and he basically went from having you know a few thousand twitter followers to a few hundred thousand twitter followers in a matter of weeks uh, just because there was such a need for reliable information from someone like him yeah i think um one theme i've been alerted to during this is that you can be the the scientist on the on the front lines doing some research about a timely topic, in this case, a, a virus that's you know, spreading across the world that we need to be doing things like testing people for the virus, figuring out uh, using these genomic tools like uh, that group you're referencing um, does and doing some modeling to figure out how you know, early did this uh, outbreak sort of have its root, how far is it spread, how, projecting how many cases are in different places based on the limited data we get. Um, you can be doing all of that careful work and also be the person or one of the people broadcasting that information to the public. Um, that's not something you often uh, see in the scientific world. There's this pretty um, serious gap, I would say, between the doing of science and the communicating of it. Uh, at best, scientists often are communicating their results in a scholarly um, format, be it at a conference presentation or in a published article that's peer-reviewed, um, we tend to be, uh, myself definitely included, a little more shy when it comes to just speaking to the general public uh, in real time, especially about things that are as yet to be uh, peer-reviewed. Um, but in this case, the, you know, the social good is at stake. And so uh, this case, like you mentioned, this uh, Twitter account that I started following for the highest quality information I could uh, come across about the, the spread of the virus was run by uh, Trevor Bedford, a, a scientist at the um, Fred Hutch Institute in uh, Seattle. I hope I got the name of that right, but he's also uh, affiliated um, with UW and they're doing some really cool stuff. Uh, they study viral evolution in, in different um, contexts and right now they're jumping on this coronavirus. Uh, case and he's been live tweeting really high quality information basically laying bare his thought process to the people which is really uh, I think the most useful thing more than any fact sharing he's walking through um, dissecting you know complex points in a literally bite-sized you know, tweet-sized units of information um, and I yeah. think it's a great model to follow for other other fields and other times when some other timely issue will require the input of a, of a scientist yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And when we think about what knowledge is, it's information that's processed, right? And typically what happens is you have scientists doing the fundamental research work, but then someone else transmits the information to the public. Like typically it's a newscaster or some media outlet that will, you know, everyone's seen a million morning news shows where they're like, new study finds that drinking a glass of wine may actually be the equivalent of working out for one hour at the gym. Like that was that was a real news segment, which, you know, obviously is pretty absurd when you think of it. And, you know, there have been other studies that are even more ridiculous where they'll say like, you know, it's actually bad to hug your dog or like coffee cures cancer or like there's and maybe some of these have some truth to them, but they get so sensationalized in the media that it's hard to really trust the information 
And when you have a one-to-one -one connection with the actual guy who's doing the research, you tend to be able to have much more trust in it because it's not some game of telephone where you know you have so many intermediaries between the person doing the work and the person absorbing the knowledge. So maybe you can say a little bit about what's the current process for getting scientific knowledge into the world and what are some of the vulnerabilities of that current process? Yeah, I, I think that's a great place to take this uh, discussion. So the sort of status quo of generating uh, scientific information and disseminating it um, to the world at large is that, let's say you do an experiment, you make some observations, you collect a bunch of data, you, you pull it all together, you're doing the scientific method in some format, and you find something out. Uh, you want to tell people about it. Most immediately, you probably need to tell the people in your field about it. They need to know that oh, this has been found, it will adjust what you're working on. Uh, so the, the traditional format, the unit at which we do this is a peer-reviewed publication. That's basically the, the unit of scientific information uh, these days has been for uh, you know centuries at this point. Um, the way that you get your unit of you know your publication, let's say you write up a paper, you've got your uh, the background so people know what you're talking about. You list the methods you use, the data that you obtained, some interpretations in the discussion at the end. You package that all up, you've got some figures that tell the story. That gets sent out to experts in your field. This is the process that we call peer review. Um, they may be people you know, they may be people you know and you like, you may know that they don't like you. It's an imperfect process. There's all sorts of human interaction going into it. Uh, but I would say by and large, uh, overall, these papers are getting into the hands of, you know, informed experts, um, I'd say on average. So it really is re reviewed by your peers. And you'll typically have a handful, you know, anywhere between two and uh, a few, four or five people looking at a paper being as critical as they possibly can, trying to basically say, what are the holes in this? Does it actually stand up? And there's some back and forth. You'll often have to revise a paper in response to some comments of these uh, reviewers. But if you eventually please all of them that you've done enough to say this is solid, it has addressed its uh, shortcomings, and it, you know, it lays bare the assumptions and all of the things that it cannot tell us, uh, it then will get published in, in a journal, some varying format, uh, which is then the, the format in which the people, whether they're in the scientific world or whether they're in the general public are supposed to be able to access the information. Um, that's sort of where, I wouldn't say where it stops. You also sort of in parallel have uh, often people, you know, scientists will be broadcasting their work by giving talks at conferences or by giving seminars at uh, research institutes. Um, but these are all ways of scientists basically talking to each other. Um, what it doesn't account for then is getting that information to the general public. Um, so I would say that is, you know, maybe one thing we could focus on here, unless you want to discuss any more about the, the way that process actually goes of defining what right. is, uh, well, I think what it's is true, it, what is. Yeah, so I think it's important to also note the timeline, like how long does it typically take mm. peer review? Is it a matter of months, a matter of years? Like what's the time scale we're dealing with? Um, yeah, quite variable, so if you've got something that is of uh, 
timely, urgent interest, then you have reason to say it should be rushed through the, the publication um, process. You are then looking at best on the timescale of weeks. Uh, you could maybe get a response within a few weeks, um, you know, two to six. Uh, and then even in the best case, that's getting the review back. Let's say it was even extremely positive. You still probably have to change something. And then if it gets accepted, it has to go into uh, print. And so you're still looking at a few months at the absolute fastest. And it's often more in the several months range and can not infrequently spill over into a year or two yeah. um, from the time that that's not the beginning of a project to being published. That's from the time when you said the project is done. I know the results. Right. Here's the paper and the time that it takes for that paper to end up as official published and um, you know printed can be easily a year or two. Right. And, and in the in the course of something like the coronavirus, you know, a matter of weeks is like a lifetime for the, mm -hmm. the way that it spreads. Yeah. yeah. So it's definitely not as amenable to that. Right. So I guess just to list like some of the vulnerabilities before we get into what would perhaps be a way to improve the process. So one is obviously it takes a lot of time and part of that's necessary. It's we really want high quality information in the world, especially scientific information, because it oftentimes serves as the bedrock that then results in, you know, media outlets creating their stories, the public coming up with how they're going to process the information and how they're going to change their own life in response to that information. So we want high quality sources, but it takes a lot of time. Um, the other vulnerability that I see right off the bat is that there's an asymmetry between, you know, let's say someone like Donald Trump and someone who's like a respected researcher in the sense that the former can be much more sensational, sensational and can immediately, with the push of a button, reach millions of people with information that is completely unverified, whereas the people who actually have the knowledge Oftentimes it takes so much, you know, back and forth and rigor among their peers before you can really get that out into the world, except in the few cases where you have someone like Bedford who's willing to actually engage with the public in real time over Twitter. Some other vulnerabilities that I'm interested if you have any thoughts on, but, you know, one is obviously some research studies are funded by organizations that have an agenda. Like, for instance, I saw one study that was reported in some morning show that said that dehydrated driving is actually just as dangerous as drunk driving. And it was a study done by 12 men. There was no control group and it was funded by Coca-Cola. <laughs> and so and but they didn't say any of that in the in the news broadcast. And of course, some studies, even if they are funded by a group that has special interest, they can still be really good studies because it totally depends on individual scientists and where their moral codes are. So, but it's something that should be said, right? Um, yeah, I'll just name one more vulnerability that I've noticed, and that is that there's also a lack of reproducing the studies. So essentially, from my perspective, a scientific research paper one of the main purposes of it is to actually create a blueprint so that anyone else can reproduce the study and come up with their own results and see if those results match the original results. But one of the major problems is that 
so rarely do reproduce do studies that are for reproducing results get funded because there's not really much of an incentive to be the second person to discover something or to find out that some study that purported that acai berries help you live longer and be happier and be more sexually you know vigorous or whatever the study is that that's actually not true there's no real glory in disproving someone else's study especially if it takes a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort to reproduce that study so it seems to me and maybe i'm misguided in my interpretation but it seems like a lot of the peer review process is just like oh yeah that sounds about right you know, you know rather than actually reproducing the study and being like oh yes i got the same exact results this is valid so i'm interested to yeah, hear your feedback on those vulnerabilities i think those are great great takes um and really i see one theme tying all of them together uh or tying a solution to all of them together and that, I would say, is transparency in the reporting of scientific information and in the publishing of scientific information. And, and what I mean by that is, let's say you take a, a more traditional journal article of the sort that still exists today for sure, but that existed decades ago. Uh, this is coming out in print in a journal, like a magazine that you will open, you'll read, you'll see the title, you'll see the, the text, the figures. Um, it's presented as fact you read the the report and you're like this made it in the journal it has mm -hmm. been approved it is the stamp of peer review as its approval at the end you might see a little bit in the acknowledgments where it would say something like we thank three anonymous reviewers for their contributions uh, they made some comments that really you know improved the paper um, occasionally mentioning by name sometimes reviewers reveal their uh, it's not a uh, it's often a blind process by default that you can always give your name and you if you really help the paper out and sometimes people divulge that information um, so they'll say thanks to so-and-so you, your comments really helped that's about all of you you have to work with uh, a lot of the time and so you're left saying okay well this one made it through it must be true or if you, you know, take it a level of sophistication higher you read it with a critical eye which and with some background knowledge of the subject where you come to your own conclusion basically doing your own peer review mm -hmm. um, now that alone, that's a very difficult thing, even if you're an expert in a given field and there's so much nuance, you need to spend so much time reading a paper to mm. do that. Um, now, there's a different way of publishing the same sort of article that we're starting to see, I think, spread in its popularity. And it's being used by uh, a lot of the same publishing outlets. Uh, I think you're starting to phase it in and piecemeal um, here and there. And it's basically taking every piece of that process, but making it a bit more transparent. So uh, starting with the reporting of the results, you see, I would say, in recent papers, a lot more detail given to methodological details, like you're saying this can help the reproducibility problem. Um, you see more and more recent papers and the ones that are doing it well, really getting closer to that you know, lab manual level of, of detail so that one could reproduce uh, the experiment and whether that's in the main text or in a supplement or now in an online um, you know appendix or something that um, doesn't really matter now it's actually i think becoming quite useful we can not have to jam all of this complex information into your article text you can have this online supplement you can share for instance your code if you're doing some modeling and a lot of this now um, scientists are making open source you can go on their website after the paper's published download the code 
do exact run the same simulation mm -hmm. they did. It gives you the result. They didn't make up the the output. So that's one level of transparency. I think it's really good. It also fosters um, just more. I don't know. Uh, scientific progress, I guess, overall, if you're going to share your model code and someone else can do something else with it and figure out something new. And they'll um, actually include the data sets, like an Excel file or something like well, that. Yeah, uh, it's actually a lot of publishers now, and I've seen this even just in the last few years, journals or uh, you know, publishers, um, so of which they, you know, they run multiple journals sometimes, but certain publishers now are requiring that you before you submit a manuscript to them, you must prove that your data is going to be publicly available. You either are attaching the file as a you know text or Excel or whatever, CSV, but you're mm -hmm. attaching your data file in raw form to the submission, or you have to give them a link showing it's already uploaded online in some database. Um, so that's a huge development already that, again, on the timescale of years right now is, is gaining um, popularity. The transparency can continue, though. It's not just for the reporting of the information by the scientists. It's also about the process of the peer review and the publishing. Because you could, again, imagine in these uh, papers, let's say that when you're reading your print journal, you see a paper that made it through peer review by three anonymous reviewers. It's been, it's received the stamp of approval. You know, it is fact now. Um, you don't know what the peer reviewer said. And they may have been highly critical of it, but there, for some reason, may have been an editor who decided that this paper is worth publishing because you know, the editor knows one of the authors or the editor thought it was just particularly interesting or, or vice versa, yeah. where the editor may have put the kibosh on a paper despite it having positive reviews. Or there may have been uh, a split review. You may have had, you know, some reviewers liked it, some were very critical, and one tipped the scales and it... Uh, and so, you, you know, it, there's not just a binary, it's yes and no. And so right. what I think is um, a great trend that I'm seeing now, uh, more and more journals starting to incorporate, is that they actually publish the entire peer review report alongside the article. Mm. So you see exactly what each of these reviewers said about that paper. You see all of their critical analysis. And so you're reading it not just with, uh, the content of the, the scientific report, you're seeing, oh, this is what three experts had to say about it, given the chance to be critical. Um, and that is a, a something that I was pointing out to you. We were seeing happening in this um, Twitter thread that Trevor Bedford was running. I really liked that he was doing that. He's basically doing a public peer review of some of these reports that are coming out. Yeah. I think that's the most useful thing of all. You're laying bare the thought process behind all of this, not just the facts that can very quickly get quoted misquoted, shared, you know, clickbait going viral, and all of a sudden you think you, you get some game of telephone going and there's some awful information getting spread. So sharing that thought process, I think, is critical. Yeah, definitely. And, yeah, I mean, it's the most worrisome thing to me is that people will just stop trusting scientific information because there is so many so much conflicting information and people are just sort of cherry picking data and it's like you know there was this great documentary called merchants of doubt and they basically go through you know how was the tobacco industry able to survive for so long when doctors and scientists basically knew with certainty that this causes cancer and people are dying 
And the whole way that they were able to stick around is just by casting doubt, by basically saying, well, everything causes cancer. Here's a study that says driving causes cancer. Here's a study that says being outside causes cancer. So just live your life. And that sort of mentality leads the public to feel like, oh, science is just whatever you want it to be. Like my opinion is just as good as any scientist's opinion. And you see that sort of attitude with things like global climate change, where everyone feels like they're their own expert and they can say, well, do we really know? And they can cast doubt. It's all about casting doubt. But when there's a real disparity between scientists who are doubtful themselves, as they should be by their by their very nature, as opposed to some, you know, people who have a real agenda who are paid lobbyists, whether it's the tobacco industry or the big oil industry or whatever it is, who are just so certain about their take on a situation, then you leave people with just not knowing what to believe and they kind of feel like, well, let's choose your own reality. Like, you know, that <laughs> my opinion is just as good as any scientists. So I'm wonder I'm wondering if you have any ideas for how we can get past that. I mean, is it all just about being more transparent, having more direct communication with scientists? Like, I almost wonder if there's some tech solution where you could, you know, once you create a certain research report and you have all the data and everything, maybe like some AI lab can just automatically like do a reproducibility study, maybe with some human input as well. Um, or maybe there could be some AI that like real time fact checks the news and information during a debate or, you know, maybe on Twitter there's like when someone tweets, yes, it can still be out there in the public, but maybe it gets like a little rating of like how true or, or incorrect is it. Um, so I'd like to get your your thoughts on that if you have any takes and then maybe we can talk about just a few of the conspiracy theories around the coronavirus because it really gives you insight into why people want to believe certain things even though there's not necessarily evidence for them. Um, but first, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on like, you know, potential AI solution or, or any way that we can, you know, real-time fact check or, you know, real-time do reproducibility studies. Yeah, that's, I mean, definitely venturing into a world that I do not have the, uh, the grasp of to say the feasibility of, say, this, you know, an AI level fact checking system. But it, in principle, for things that are, you know, a paper that's based on a mathematical foundation, a modeling study, that mm -hmm. sort of thing would definitely lend itself to fact checking of, by you know, some sort of algorithm. Uh, it, it would definitely be trickier, I mean, if not impossible, with a lot of the laboratory or, you know, human trial cases that already just the, the trouble of amassing enough data from, let's say you need to do some drug trial and you need to be tracking people over years in some cases, uh, and you get an extremely imperfect data set out of that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the time scale on which you could reproduce that, I mean, the, you need an answer sooner than that. Um, yes, it, it, I'm definitely all in favor of making it more of a norm to fund that sort of work um, because there is this sort of reproducibility crisis that you know, people are rightly worried about in the, the science world. But some things would be de uh, definitely harder to mm -hmm. um, have a quick solution for. Right, because it seems to me like this is a problem that 
is new in regards to science, but it's not new in regards to social media. Like the problem of actually finding out is this information accurate or not. So it seems to me like there are basically three ways that information is is uh, you know validated, and that's either hiring a bunch of moderators who know what to look for. That's what Facebook does right now in their battle against misinformation. Or you could crowdsource fact-checking, which is basically what Twitter does right now, where if someone says something totally false, you've got a bunch of replies, hopefully, debunking that claim. And then you have some sort of algorithmic fact-checking mechanism, which no one's really cracked the code on yet. I mean, they, they do use this somewhat in Facebook. Like, for instance, they have AIs that can see, are, is this video you know, sexually explicit? Is this video, you know, have violence that's like real world violence? And then a moderator will basically look into it and confirm whether or not that's the case. But I don't know if there's any other ways we could combat it. So it seems to me like the most promising would be some combination of the three. Yeah, at least on the large scale, again, so I mean, when you're considering the volume of information moving through a Facebook or a Twitter compared to the volume of information moving through a scientific journal, um, you simply cannot, uh, you know, hire enough people who have enough man hours to uh, moderate all of the content going up on those social media platforms. But you can carefully curate the and it does happen. I mean, that the way it works in the science publishing world is that everything is so carefully curated. Um, mm -hmm. that there is no, you know, you're not getting some uh, viral meme making it through the peer review process. I mean, there, right. there's definitely a range of quality of articles, but um, that's maybe one extreme in terms of vetting. Uh, but I think for having some place that you can go to that is the most reliable, basically, like a something that you know, if you need the answer to a question, you can trust it all the way through. I think on that extreme, you need to have the approach of we vet things to, mm -hmm. you know, uh, with a person looking it over uh, before it can you know, see the light of day, basically. Um, I think right. you need a harder cap on, on the information sharing than we see with Twitter, for instance. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing about that is that I've seen multiple people on Twitter talk about how it's not CNN or MSNBC or Fox or whatever where they get their information that they really trust. It's just a few people they follow on Twitter or on YouTube that they trust because they've built up that relationship with them over time and they've found their information to be accurate. So we're seeing sort of a move away from the Walter Cronkite world where his word is God to more of a world where it's like everyone's got their own YouTube star or Twitter personality that they sort of depend on for reliable information and it has upsides and downsides, but it's just an interesting way that the whole you know field is, of information is changing. And I want to remark on something else about the whole viral meme aspect to it, which is that it's not always the most reliable information that rises to the top. Oftentimes it's the stickiest information. The, the information that you wish were true or that you could so easily imagine being true that your mind just wraps itself around it and just takes it to be fact. And so this has definitely been the case in the coronavirus uh, situation where 
I'll just list a few of the conspiracy theories because it's, it's fun. So the first one is that it's a bioweapon intentionally released by China. Now, there is some interesting circumstantial evidence for this just because there does happen to be a top tier you know, biochemical weapon research facility in Wuhan, which was sort of the spark of that initial theory. But it's obviously, if it was intentional, it has totally backfired because this has not been good PR for China. It's been terrible for their economy. So it seems kind of ridiculous to think that this was intentional, just given how it's turning out for them. But you can see why someone who thinks like China is evil, they only do evil things, if you have that mindset, it's super easy to also take the leap and say, oh, well, they obviously must have released this as an intentional bioweapon. Um, you know, another conspiracy theory I've seen online is that 5G is increasing the risk of coronavirus and it actually may be spreading the virus itself, and which is just totally ridiculous and has been debunked. But if you're someone who just is a, a, t a technophobe, like you're really afraid of new technology and you've already bought into how big of a concern 5G really is for your health and everything, it's really easy to make that leap to think that 5G must be part of this coronavirus scare. Um, you know, so that's also a, a confirmation bias. Another one, which is more on the far right, so Rush Limbaugh in the U.S. says that the coronavirus was being weaponized as yet another element to bring Trump down. That's so like they thought that this was all, of course, it's all just some scheme from the liberals who want want to take him down. Um, I mean, I mean, I could go on. I literally have like a list of all these conspiracy theories. But the interesting thing to me is just acknowledging how big of a role confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance play with any sort of viral meme. So I don't know what the possible solution is to this, but it does seem worth noting that, you know, it can't just be a boring piece of information if it's gonna get spread. It has to have some sort of hook to it for people to actually remember it. And, you know, they've used this for good causes too. Like for instance, click it or ticket is a good way to remember that you need to put on your seatbelt every time or you'll get a ticket. So you can use like sort of mnemonics and, and stuff like that, um, which is interesting. But I guess one other thing I'll say and then I'll get your reaction is that I saw this video from Kurzgesagt where they say that one great way to tell if a conspiracy theory is true or false is just to think, is this something that also affects rich people? And if so, then it's probably not true, right? So for instance, chemtrails, this is one of the most uh, longest lasting conspiracy theories that still has a lot of proponents. And this is the idea that when you see planes flying across the sky and they release clouds, that it's actually some sort of chemicals that are meant to somehow like control us psychologically or damage us or make us infertile, or there's all different variations of this. But if you just ask the question, okay, but do rich people and powerful people breathe the same air as us? Yes, okay, probably not true then, right? Or another one is like that there's a conspiracy that there is a cure for cancer, but Big Pharma is holding back because they make so much money on us. But then you can just ask, okay, do rich people get cancer? Yes, they do. 
So that's probably not a true theory. Um, and same thing with the coronavirus, where it's like, okay, if you think this was intentionally released by China, okay, are people in, you know, are wealthy people, powerful people still dying from the coronavirus? Yes, like there's like, you know, top top officials in Iran that are dying from it, uh, even though it's may not have hit top Chinese officials. It's definitely bad for people like President Xi who are trying to keep everything under control and keep China in a good light as far as how the globe, uh, uh, the global community of countries see it. So I thought that was an interesting way to sort of determine, you know, whether or not a conspiracy theory is true. Uh, but yeah, interested to hear if you have any reactions or any ideas for how we can make reliable information somewhat somewhere near as popular as unreliable conspiracy theories. Well, you know, I think, unfortunately, I have to say that the same sorts of principles apply within the scientific world as we tried to deem what is more reliable, what is more true, what is a more robust theory. Um, the sticky stuff, the stuff you want to be true, often gets more citations, often spends more time being discussed at conferences, often becomes the sort of the paradigm. Uh, there's a quote that I love. It's, goes something along the lines of the eminence of a scientist is uh, measured by the length of time that he or she holds up progress in their field. Um, <laughs> because everyone thinks, oh, this person said it, they must be right, that they really know what they're talking about. Right. And that paradigm becomes so difficult to overturn, basically. Um, so the same sorts of principles apply. And so unfortunately, what I think it means in general is that it's the, the harder thing to do is to get at the core of what's more accurate, what's the real picture, what is the, the messy underlying detail, and what's not just a sensational tidbit. Um, it's a, but it's a skill set that one can hone and that you know, applies to literally every sort of situation you could come across in your life. And so if I just had to, uh, instead of explaining everything I think that ought to go into that, I would just have to cite one work um, that has influenced my thinking on that more than anything else. It's Carl Sagan's book, uh, The Demon Haunted World, Science mm -hmm. as a Candle in the Dark. He uh, he outlines all sorts of case studies about things that are, you know, funny cases about his chapters on UFOs and uh, why did all sorts of uh, you know, reports of people being abducted come along shortly after all sorts of movie releases about, you know, aliens mm -hmm. and uh just really debunks a lot of things. And then in, in one chapter, if you only had to read one chapter, the whole thing, he has one where he calls it the fine art of baloney detection. Hmm. He has this baloney detection kit. It's a series of, you know, like you were saying, the, uh, the little shorthand, um, you know, way of thinking about the conspiracy theories. Does it affect rich people? He's got some more, uh, you know, distilled wisdom of the sort of, saying, for instance, uh, don't trust arguments from authority or, you know, uh, some logical. Right, right. Like, look, I am the director of this. Like, you know, your yeah, argument things. should stand in its own right. Yeah. And things that you can, once you, you know, read that and then go pick up a newspaper or something, you'll notice all sorts of these things being, you know, these rhetorical devices being used consciously or not 
because they they're effective and we mm-hmm. you know sometimes you, it's it's really something i think it's a constant training right. and reminding of your brain so i, I never uh you know discount uh, I, I understand how how people end up in these situations and it happens to all of us and you really need to stay on top of making the effort to carefully digest information but it's a it's a right. skill you can definitely um yeah develop. like i, I was uh watching a newscast the other day and basically they were they had a, an official from the you know the white house answering questions about the coronavirus and one of the reporters pointed out that the u.s doesn't even know how many tests we've done whereas if you look at south korea or singapore they know exactly how many tests they've run they have really good data they know the rate of infection the rate of severe cases the rate of death Whereas the U.S. seems really sort of far behind on it. So a journalist was asking, like, how many tests have been run? Like, do we know the numbers? And rather than actually answering the question and admitting that, you know, we might not have our act together as much as some of these other countries, the, the representative basically did the high ground maneuver. And the high ground maneuver is not answering the question, but taking a high ground. He said something along the lines of, of you know, right now, while we're focused, while you are focusing in the details, we're focused on saving American lives. Like that's what we care about. We're going to get as many tests done as we can. We're going to do the best job we can. And that is a super effective tactic in any sort of debate or per- persuasive uh, context. But it's it's like totally avoiding the actual question at hand or the actual facts on the ground. So yeah, I, I see that time and time again. But if you, if you aren't trained to see those sorts of tactics, then you can very easily just be convinced by it and not even realize that someone just pulled a fast one on you. Absolutely, and I think it's even easier for that to happen in the you know real time human to human interactions uh, that are the sort of say a political speech or a uh, debate or. Uh, even just a conversation or someone going on the news, uh, something, I don't know, about just the way that we are used to interacting with people. You're kind of on autopilot. You're you know, reading their uh, emotions, their you know, uh, body language. And to be doing all of these things and also doing this like rigorous you know, fact-checking in your head, there's a certain error rate. You're going to miss some things. Um, it's part of why, I guess, a, a useful... Uh, thing that's coming out of, say, the way that the social media world is operating, um, like you were saying before, basically crowdsourcing, fact-checking. Uh, you may have missed something despite your best efforts, but someone else may have caught it. Mm-hmm. And if that voice ends up getting, you know, uh, or, you know voted up, because uh, it's enough retweets, whatever platform you're on, getting to the people, then that's great. That means that one person needed to see it and everyone can benefit from that. Um, so there's an element to which you know, the numbers game can help there. Yeah, definitely. Although I thought it was interesting that Apple just came out with a statement that they are not allowing any new apps in the app store about the coronavirus unless they're from a reputable organization like the World Health Organization or the CDC. And there were actually some really good apps that got submitted that use reliable, publicly available information. But because they weren't associated with a reputable organization, they did not get approved. So I thought that was interesting because it was sort of a, 
an argument for authority over just the reliability mm -hmm. of the information itself. And I feel mm -hmm. like maybe when something's this important, they figured, you know, why risk it? Like they don't really have the infrastructure to know if every single app is using reliable information. So they're better off just going with the known entities that, you know, deal with this stuff all the time. Yeah, that's a tough case. I would definitely say that the the highest, you know, the ideal situation there is one where you do not need to be imposing, you know, you don't want to see this authority uh, or legitimacy basically uh, decided from some single entity, be it Apple in that case. Uh, you want it to basically go to the you know, the people, the market, whatever the the facts should hopefully be again, yeah selected for crowdsourced whatever but obviously that doesn't always work and in this case when even if it were to get to that point eventually where the the scammy ones and the fake news you know apps would eventually get shut down i mean when there's enough on the line that you can't risk that happening on a day-to-day -day basis and you can't keep up with monitoring that's a, a tricky mm. situation so i can't say i know the best option for it but it's an interesting right. point Plus, there's no review process for websites, so anyone can make a website with whatever information and it can get traction. Yeah. Well, I think now would be a good time to take a quick break and then get into the future scenarios. All right, Kip, what is your worst case scenario for the future of knowledge? Worst case scenario. Worst case, you know, in this instance, I think I can imagine a few different directions that would be quite bad, but different flavors, uh, different ways of panning out. So one that would be very bad um, is one in which the the noise in the system, be it on Twitter, be it even in the publishing world, um, if the low quality information becomes of such high quantity that you cannot sift through it all and get to the high quality information, um, that's basically a world where, yeah, be it like this uh, sowing of doubt deliberately or be it just white noise of nonsense. Uh, it's a scary world when you can't either access what's true or it, you cease to be able to figure out what is true um, about a certain topic. That's a that's a pretty bad um, case that I could imagine. The only maybe worse case than that, or I don't know that it's necessarily worse, it's just a different way of going. That one is like we evolve ourselves into that sort of system externally and it's it's really not great. But maybe maybe in a different flavor of worse is some authoritarian uh, entity, some government group, some special interest, some company basically having the power to control selectively the information that people can access and in doing so can basically set up truth and mm -hmm. falsehood for you know huge chunks of the population um, that's a very scary world to live in too uh, and unfortunately you, know, you can see the steps that separate us from each of those you know, pretty right. well delineated it's it's plausible so yeah, I, I had I'm very. Thinking, what about you? I had very similar ones. I also agree that, you know, we are in the quote information explosion right now, and 
it's hard to know exactly what the rate is, but I've seen people say things like every month more information is created than all history's information combined, just because we are literally in an information explosion. When you think about how many new like tweets and pictures and just everything that goes out every moment compared to history where you actually had to write something down, spend the time copying from one book to another. Like it had to be of a certain quality that it was worth it to do that. And just the nature of information as it explodes in quantity, it gets harder and harder to sift through that information. So I think unless there is a lot of conscious work done to make the reliable information rise to the top, then the default outcome is that it's just hard to figure out what's the real real. And you can have a situation that we're kind of already in, which is choose your own reality, choose who you want to believe. Everyone's opinion is just as good as anyone else's. And that's a really scary place to be, especially when you're dealing with a real situation, whether it's you know, the real threat of nuclear war or the real threat of a pandemic or the real threat of an asteroid hitting Earth. If you can't agree on like the basic physics of when it's going to happen, how bad it's going to be, what to do, what could potentially prevent it, then it's really hard to take steps to counteract whatever the, the current danger is. So I think that's like a big threat, especially in a democratic system like America, which really values freedom of speech. And freedom of speech often sort of sneaks in, like freedom to be a total moron and manipulate people and spout disinformation, unfortunately. Um, although I've, I think free speech is super valuable, so it's almost would rather have that than not let anyone speak their mind. And that's what on the other side of the spectrum is exactly that, not letting anyone speak their mind and basically having a top-down control over what the, what the approved facts are. And we did see that a little bit in China where, you know, that, that doctor who went viral for saying that the pandemic was actually worse than the authorities were letting on, he got silenced. And so that is a major problem in China um, as opposed to the problem of just like everyone being their own expert in the U.S., so I do think we have to consider both of those as potential, potentially really bad worst case scenarios. What do you think for the best case scenario? Best case scenario. So in the best case, I would have to say, you know, inspired a bit by what your ideas were of some sort of algorithmic fact-checking AI sort of system uh, I would I would say in the best possible cases we attain some sort of ability much better than we have right now to assess the quality of information or at least track the the origin of it, it, it mm -hmm. I think it's going to continue to always be hard to uh, quantify the you know truth or falsehood or the robustness of any given tidbit of information, but to at least in real time track the the sources for things or the underlying basis, the data or the just the quotation for a certain something that's being shared and somehow embed that so that when things are being shared, you're not able to just clip the piece that you want and you know then you get this game of telephone going. But if there's some more traceability so mm -hmm. that you can more easily 
see the the unit that's been shared to you and then see where it actually is coming from. Uh, in the context of the social media world, I've got to think there the toolkit exists for something along those lines. Um, mm -hmm. I don't have an immediate, and, and as far as, well, it's a slightly different, um, you know, aspect of all of this, but in the specific instance of publishing scientific information, I think, again, the, the transparency trend taken to its fullest would mean that you are basically seeing the full thought process of the scientists doing the work, the full thought process of the people evaluating the work, and that is ideally conveyed in a, in a format that's extremely accessible so that there's no ambiguity, um, so that instead of basically getting sort of analogous to the social media case, facts given to you that this one is true, this one is not, uh, you're given you know, this spectrum of information. You've got this takeaway point of like, this is what we think, but it's tracked, you know, you can trace this whole process of this is what it's built upon. Yeah. Um, and the fact that we're not limited now to the number of pages, you know, that you publish in a, in a journal, um, in terms of space, the fact that you can upload whole data sets, uh, share whole models on the internet, we absolutely have the ability to start doing that. So those yeah. are at least the trends that I would envision. Totally. But. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my best case scenario is similar in that the high quality information is able to rise to the top. And I think that's only possible if scientific information becomes near instantaneous because, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. And whenever there's not reliable information on a topic, people will fill in that vacuum with whatever they think should be true. So if there is a way to have, you know, sort of real time, reliable information, that would be my best case scenario. And it's hard to imagine how that would happen without some algorithmic component to it. Um, although I would say that I guess another way that it could rise to the top is if every science, if the role of a scientist sort of changes, where it's not just about scientists talking to each other, and it's like, well, someone else will deal with the public and disseminating it to the public. But if scientists actually become almost like their own media outlet, like every scientist has his own Twitter channel, his own YouTube channel, mm -hmm. and you know, they maybe we can make the incentives such that if you have the most reputable information, like there's some uh, incentive for you to do that and, uh, along the lines of reproducibility studies as well. Like if we incentivize people to really fact check and at the same time, they're able to make one-to-one -one connections with the public, then that would be a, at least give us some chance in the fight against misinformation for people who just say whatever is the most viral, right? I, I think that's a great point. One, I just, I do want to, I don't know, double down on that. I think we absolutely do not have that as a norm right now in the scientific world. It's almost sort of in an unspoken way, um, I wouldn't say frowned upon, just viewed as less important than doing, more, spending your time just doing more science. Um, there's sort of this, you know, glorification of just uncovering the fundamental you know, nature of the cosmos. You know, it's mm -hmm. just this noble pursuit. But what are you, you know, you're living off in your ivory tower if you're not actually taking the time to relay the findings that you found out because they were funded by usually 
public money, usually coming from taxpayer dollars. And if you're stopping the process before you're bringing that information to the people whose tax dollars funded that work, um, you're you're doing society a disservice. And so I think right now the incentive structure is not set up in such a way that there's any reason for, you know, besides just personal motivation or interest uh, to spend a lot of time doing that sort of public dissemination. But you could very easily build that instance, uh, incentive structure in, whether it is, um, there are two things you need to get between uh, a scientist and um, either their tenure or their grant money. <laughs> uh, and if you're standing between them and that, if you need to be tweeting or writing blog posts or giving public talks to get funded or to get tenure, they'll do it. Right. So uh, we could definitely see a, a different sort of system where, like you're saying, each scientist is a public figure in a way on their own topic and is comfortable in speaking in that sort of uh, setting. That definitely yeah. is a, a best case scenario I think we should work towards. Right. And, and I think the, the social media platforms themselves can change their algorithms. So it's not just about what's the most popular, but it's also about what's the most reliable. And they've sort of held back on making those sort of distinctions because they don't really want the responsibility oftentimes. But there have been some talk of Twitter creating sort of like an open source code of their algorithm. So anyone can use their algorithm or suggest a different algorithm that maybe rather than valuing, you know, the number of retweets or outrage or whatever, they value the number of replies from other reputable sources or likes only from other reputable sources. Or, you know, there are many ways that you can adjust the algorithm to change what rises to the top. So I feel confident that it is possible, especially if more reliable people are actually engaging on these social platforms, but it is going to take a cultural shift both on the part of scientists and on the part of social media you know, platforms to change how they operate. Well, let's, let's bring it home with the most likely scenario. What do you think is most likely to happen in the next you know, 10, 20 years? Most likely scenario. Yeah, I do think in many ways we're at a pretty, um, I don't know, active, you know, uh, pivotal crossroads in this sort of arena. On the one hand, I think we are perhaps more than ever susceptible to the, the things we were talking about in the worst case scenario in terms of the sharing of information on social media. Uh, I don't see a trend that's necessarily reversing the, you know, the, the noisiness or the spread of misinformation. Um, I don't think it'll necessarily take over immediately, but it's going to be a hard, it's going to be a challenge to deal with that. But I'm encouraged by things that I see, especially like I was saying earlier in the, the transparency of scientific publishing and the effort and the desire of people to not just share pieces of information as you know, one-off facts, but actually share the thought process and actually, you know, lay bare what goes into generating a fact and all of the uncertainty associated with it. Um, if we can just take the next step basically towards not just doing that within the context of your own, you know, scientific journal, but basically doing this outwardly facing the public all the time, um, that would be great. And I think we're, 
that's well within reach for a, for a likely scenario within the time scale of you know a decade or two. Um, so I think we could expect to see scientific publishing steadily move in that direction. And I think both that world and the, the social media information world have, you know, complementary things to learn from each other about how they should and should not approach the sharing of information. Um, yeah. Just some thoughts. Yeah, I would say for, for my most likely, you know, oftentimes when I'm considering the most likely, I'll think about what are the, how are the younger generations behaving? Because that's often a good sign for how future generations will behave. And I feel pretty optimistic about the future of knowledge when I look at how, you know, millennials and Gen Zs respond to conspiracy theories as opposed to, say, baby boomers or the greatest generation. Because I feel like when you grow up in a digital native environment, your bullshit detector is just calibrated to a whole nother level than if you grew up in the era of newspapers and Walter Cronkite and now you're being hit from every angle with every persuasion tactic you're just simply not going to have as good a defenses as someone who's been you know pressing buttons on an iPad since day one so I think that information the quality of information will go up over time I think people will get better at combating misinformation I think that the nature of just any profession is going to be more ingrained with the information economy, the attention economy. So I think it makes sense to predict that scientists will have a more public facing role in the future. So I feel pretty optimistic about this, but it's, it's definitely not something we can sit idly by and just hope that it works out because, you know, when you're talking about something like the future of knowledge, the future of information, any other scenario we care about, whether it's the planet or pandemics or space travel or anything else we want to achieve, it's super critical that we all have the same set of facts that we can agree on. And then from there, we can just decide how do we want to interpret you know, the facts so that we can make the best path forward for ourselves and our species and our planet. Absolutely. So I, I, I agree with you. Reason for uh, hopefulness that with you know, challenges notwithstanding, it's there's a lot of encouraging potential with the this new means of sharing information rapidly. Um, so I agree. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Kip, for taking the time, and thank you to our listeners. This has been the future of knowledge, and we'll see you next time. The past, the present, and the future.